If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll be reading again verses 1 through 6 in Ephesians chapter 4. This is the word of our God. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, Lord, we rejoice in this day. We thank you, Lord, that You have given us this great privilege to come and gather in your name, Lord, to praise and worship you, to hear your word. Lord, we pray now that as we look again into your word, that we would be attentive hearers, Lord, that we would be ready to receive with joy what you have delivered to us. Father, may you use your word and the power of your spirit to apply it to us, Lord, that we may be obedient to you and that we may bring glory and honor to you and to your son, Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray, amen. As we come this afternoon to this 12th and final message in this series on unity, as we've gone through this text, I think now for a little bit over a year, these six verses in Ephesians. We've considered why unity is important in various organizations in the human realm. We understand, for example, that if there is a sports team competing and they lack unity, it doesn't matter how talented the individual players are, They're not going to be a championship-caliber team because a team must be united to perform at its peak level. If one nation goes to war against another, if one of those armies lacks cohesion, if one of those armies lacks a clear vision and a clear goal, and they do not have unity around a common mission, they are most certainly doomed to defeat. And we might be tempted to look at church unity in the same way that we consider any other institution and organization where unity matters. It is easy for us to think about unity purely in pragmatic terms. We must stay unified because if we are not unified, we'll not be able to achieve the mission of the church. Or we, may, we must stay unified because if we don't, then our adversary, the devil, will gain an advantage and potentially a victory over us. We are in a life-and-death struggle for the souls of sinners, 
So unity is important, not only for our own personal well-being within the body of Christ, but also for our ability to reach the lost with the good news of Christ crucified. And all of these things are perfectly true, as we've seen. We are urged in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to maintain our unity because we are not ignorant of Satan's devices or schemes. We are told in John 13.35 that it is our love for one another that will make clear to the world that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. There are many practical reasons why we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as verse 3 calls us to do. And as we talked about last time, there are many blessings that come to us as believers if we are part of a church that is obeying this command to preserve the unity of the Spirit around the truth of Jesus Christ. But when we come to the final verses of this section, verses 4 through 6, we are moving beyond what is practical and primarily of interest in the human realm into the real basis of our unity in Christ. And why it is so important to preserve a unified church. We see in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, that our unity is more than just a useful tool for spiritual growth or for evangelism. Our unity is nothing less than a reflection of the character and the nature of God himself. It is important how our unity impacts others, but it is infinitely more important how our unity brings glory to God. Church unity is designed to shine forth the truths about who God is so that he will be glorified in his church. And our unity reflects the nature and character of God because our unity is grounded in who God is. Our unity is not derived from a temporal situation. It is not grounded in a human trait or in human personalities. Our unity is derived from the very character of God. And when we create division in the church where there should not be division, we are failing to represent the true nature and character of God. And rather than bringing him glory, we are bringing his name into disrepute. Now, as we have noted, there is an appropriate time to separate from people, to draw a line and say, we are not united with this group, or we're not united with that group. When people have a different view of the Word of God, and they do not see the Word of God as sufficient, or when people serve a different God, or they have the wrong gospel, if we stay united with them, we would compromise what we believe about God and His Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is actually necessary in those situations to divide because staying united misrepresents the character of God. There are times when it is necessarily necessary to accurately reflect who God is that we draw a line and say we cannot be united with these people because they distort the character and the nature of God. But when we have brothers and sisters who recognize and believe in the sufficiency of God's word, who have their understanding of God determined by scripture, and who are seeking to obey the great commission and make disciples for Christ by proclaiming the word of God, 
we then are called to maintain unity with those brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this does not mean that we're all going to attend the same church. There are churches throughout this area and region that we would consider united with us. We consider them brothers and sisters in Christ. We have friends here and abroad that are Christians, and we are unified in Christ even though they are members of other assemblies. But as I mentioned last time, our unity is tested in the local church where we are a member. These are the people that God has put around us to test our unity. So that is why we are considering unity, especially in the context of the people with whom we attend church, because it is here where it is easy to encounter gossip or slander or bitterness or anger or the other things that cause division to occur. To occur. And those are the kinds of things that we are talking about ending when we are talking about keeping the unity within the people of God in the church. We are talking about destroying the sinful things that would divide us. A lack of forgiveness, pride, selfishness, and these types of things that create division where there should not be division among the people of God. And so the basis of our unity, as we look back at verses 4 through 6, is not that everyone in the church has been nice to us. It is not that No one in the church has ever sinned against us. It is not that we like the people in this church or we're really getting along with all their personalities. In fact, if our unity is based on these types of things, it will fall apart in short order. Our unity to be sturdy through all the ups and downs of life together as a church must be based on the character and on the nature of God. And what must motivate us to maintain that unity must go beyond ourselves and what is easy or pleasant or what seems beneficial now. And we must be motivated ultimately by giving glory to God to preserve this unity. Now, Paul spells this out for us in verses 4 through 6. He shows different things about each member of the Trinity to highlight the basis of our unity being found in God. And he begins in verse 4 by showing that the basis for our unity is the one Spirit of God. Verse 4 begins by saying, there is one body and one Spirit. Now you notice again, like I pointed out last time, that there is no connecting word between verses 3 and 4. So to try to understand what Paul is doing, we must supply some kind of thought to know how these things relate together. And the consensus, and I think it is correct, is that we should supply some type of thought like for or because at the beginning of verse 4. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there is one body and one Spirit. Now, one thing that would have been obvious to the original readers or listeners as the letter to the Ephesians was read was the connection between verse 3 and the call to unity and the word one in verses 4 through 6, which is repeated seven times. The word one is part of the word unity in the original language. And so this is how the word 
This is how the original reader might have heard it. If we were to translate it like this, endeavoring to keep the oneness of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit. And then this word one is repeated seven times to highlight the oneness we are to have and it is the foundation, its foundation is in the tr- one true and living God. Now some wonder, why does Paul begin with the Spirit in verse 4? Why doesn't he go in the normal order that we're used to in talking about the Trinity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think the answer to that is very simple. Because he has been talking about the Spirit in verse 3. It is the unity of the Spirit we are called to preserve. So it is a natural transition then to talk about the Spirit and then to move on to the Son and to talk about the Father as he comes to the end and to the high point of the paragraph. Now he says in verse 4, there is one Spirit. And the emphasis on this word one, when we think about the Spirit, might seem strange to us or might even seem like such an obvious thing We may wonder why Paul does note that there is one spirit. We must understand, if you think about the Ephesian believers and their pagan past, they were people who worshipped many false gods. And they were people who were in dread of many spirits as they lived their lives. Very superstitious and always trying to appease a multitude of deities and trying to make sure that none of the gods and none of the spirits were upset with them. In fact, Paul already addressed this reality at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 in this letter. In verses 20 and 21 in chapter 1, he tells the Ephesians that God set the resurrected Christ at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. And he reminds them, in chapter 2, verse 2, that in time past, before their conversion, they walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And there is a spiritual war going on. And one of the many evidences of the wickedness of false religion is the many spirits that are part of false religion and the chaos and the confusion that comes as a result of having many spirits influencing people who believe in these false religions. You think about different types of false religions. and On the one end, you have religions that are extreme in their pacifism. There is never a justification under any circumstance to take a life. But then you have other religions on the other extreme side of things that have barbaric and savage human sacrifice. Or you have false religions that teach that it is a good thing to blow yourself up in a suicidal attempt to take out other people. Why is there such diversity in all these false religions? It is because they are not governed by one spirit. There are all kinds of demonic spirits in the world working discord and chaos and division among men. The mark of all the false religions is how chaotic they are how much chaos in the world it creates, and how much division it sows in the world. We must understand that all of these false religions 
are under the influence and all have one objective, which is to distract you from the truth. And anything is better for the truth, better than the truth. They, they will sow all kinds of false ideas among all kinds of people as they go out to seek to take people away from the truth of Jesus Christ. So Paul here, he's telling them and says that you're not like pagans anymore. We do not live our lives in fear of many spirits. We are not directed by a multitude of spirits so that we are pulling in different directions. We have one spirit. Our God is one spirit. There is not all this multitude and pantheon of gods. And that means that within the church there should not be chaos in our relationships. It should appear outwardly in our relationships as though there is one spirit. And there should be a unity and peace that comes because one spirit is guiding and directing and governing us all. The idea of there being one spirit then, it's, it's more than just a numerical value of there being one spirit in number. Of course there is one spirit in number. Benny Hinn is incorrect to argue that there are seven holy spirits and nine members of the Trinity. That's not what scripture teaches. There is only one spirit. But the point of Paul saying that indicates that the unity of the spirit in goal and purpose and mission is one. And because the spirit is unified and he is not double, a double-minded spirit or a multitude of spirits, the church also should be unified in this one spirit. So we are to reflect this one spirit by preserving his unity among us. Now this is fleshed out a little bit more in verse 4 when Paul says there is one body. Now that, as we know, is a reference to the church. Paul is saying in reality there is only one true church. Now there are many congregations that are scattered all over the world and have existed throughout all of church history But there is ultimately only one true church, only one new covenant people bought by the blood of Christ, one new body, one new creation. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives us all these images for the body of Christ, the new man, the one kingdom, the one family, the one temple. God is not constructing many temples scattered throughout all the world. He's building one temple, one dwelling place for himself through the Holy Spirit. And whenever someone comes to know Christ, they are placed into the body of Christ. And this is the very same body of Christ that every other believer throughout all of history has been a member of. The Spirit, because he is one Spirit who is not divided or confused, then is growing one body, the church of Jesus Christ. Second. Paul says there is one hope, one hope of your calling in verse 4. And this phrase, even as ye were called in one hope of your calling, takes us back to verse 1, where he says that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That vocation or calling comes with one hope. And here we see that the Spirit calls us all to that exact same hope. As Christians, we don't have a variety of hopes. 
We have one hope that we all share together. What is that one hope? Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 23 through 25 says this, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even when we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. The hope is outlined in verse 23. It it is our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is the great Christian hope. What we are waiting for is nothing less than the redemption of our bodies. You see, our souls have already been redeemed. If we've been forgiven of our sins and placed in Christ, and been brought into relationship with God. But we all know that as believers walking through this present evil age, we are not yet fully redeemed. How do we know that? Because we still sin. You still struggle with sin and the flesh and all the temptations that come to you in life. And so there is a part of us that is not redeemed, namely our bodies. And there is more evidence our bodies are not redeemed. It's not just the sin. It's the brokenness of them and and the fact that ultimately we die. They are still under the curse that came to Adam, but we are waiting for our bodies themselves to be redeemed. And that is our great hope. Paul says we do not see that yet, but that it is going to come. It is the resurrection from the dead. Our bodies will be redeemed when Christ returns and raises us all from the dead. And what a glorious day that will be when our redemption is complete so that sin will be fully and completely eradicated from our very existence and experience. Isn't that our great hope to be holy like God is holy? so that we can stop sinning, so that we can stop struggling with the flesh. The greatest battle we face is internal, isn't it? I mean, Satan doesn't need a lot of help. He doesn't need a lot of help to tempt us to sin. We're already struggling with that on our own. And what a great reality that will be that when it is over and our bodies have been redeemed and the battle with sin comes to an end. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. First Peter reiterates this. In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, "Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." This phrase, hope to the end, it could also be rendered fix your hope completely or set your hope fully or rest your hope fully. 
The main thing that we are to do in this verse, Peter says, is to fix your hope fully, completely, entirely on the return of Christ. On the grace that will come to you when Jesus comes back. Your hope should be fixed there. None of it should be fixed here. None of it is in the temporal realm. There is nothing in this life that gives us hope like this hope. The only hope that we have is the coming grace that is to be revealed when Christ returns. And what a wonderful reality it is to think that we were saved by grace in the past and we are being saved by grace now. And it is grace that is is at work within us, as we heard earlier. And when we get to that final day when our lives are complete and the Lord returns, we'll be saved on that final day, still by grace. It will be grace that saves us from beginning, middle, and end. It's all of the grace of God. And he says, you had that grace in the past. Now, we don't fix our hope on the the grace from the past, but on the grace that is yet to come. When God is going to give us this amazing gift that we do not deserve of his grace, of raising us from the dead and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John agrees that this is the hope of the Christian faith. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, the word of God reads, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. John says that we are children of God now. Again, this is an amazing reality. We think about how sinful we are and how much we struggle. And all the frailty in our lives and all the failures and weaknesses. And the ways that we do not live up to God's holy standard. And John says in all of that, right now you are a child of God through Jesus Christ. You are accepted by God in Christ as his child. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. Now the point of that is not to say that at some point we are going to stop being children of God and be something else. The point of that is to say that if we are children of God now, as frail as we are, as sinful as we are, as often as we disobey the Father now, What in the world are we going to be when we're fully conformed to the image of Christ? If we are fully accepted now, how much more glorious will it be in our relationship and in our fellowship with our Father when all sin is gone from our experience and we have been conformed to Christ finally and perfectly? And he says that when he appears, we will be just like him. How do we know that? Because we are going to see him as he is. The only way that you can see Christ as he is, is if you are holy like God. Anybody that is unholy cannot come into the presence of God. You can't see Jesus as he is. There is a reason when he came into the world, he had to veil his glory in flesh. 
He would have incinerated the entire universe if he had come as he is. And by the way, he's going to incinerate the entire universe when he comes again. Second Peter 3 tells us that it's going to be destroyed with fire. He is going to come again, and when he comes as he is, the only people that are going to be able to stand the sight of him without being destroyed are those that have this hope of his appearing. John says our hope is fixed on him. Brothers and sisters, we have one hope that we point people to through the Holy Spirit, and that is the return of Christ. It isn't anything that is going to happen in this life. That means that any preaching or teaching that is offering you any other hope, any some temporal hope, is not from the Spirit of God. Because there is one Spirit who gives one hope to those that he calls into the one body of Christ. It's tragically ironic that the people that most often talk about the Holy Spirit know absolutely nothing about him. How do we know that they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit? Because they call people to hope in health and wealth and prosperity in this present age. That is not the Christian hope. The New Testament writers are all uniform about this. The hope that we are all fixed on is the return of Jesus Christ in glory. It has nothing to do with anything that will happen in this temporal world. Jesus was very clear to his disciples before he went to the cross. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Don't put your hope in this world. Put your hope in the return of Christ when he will come gloriously to transform the world. Not everybody talking about heaven is going there. And not everybody talking about the Holy Spirit is doing so from the Holy Spirit. There is one body and there is one spirit and there is one hope. And one of the surefire ways to spot a false teacher is to find out who is putting your hope in the present rather than in the future. Our unity then is to be a reflection that there is only one true church. There is only one hope for humanity through the work of Christ. As we await the return of our blessed God and Savior, And when we are disunited, understand this, when we are disunited, when we are not united together in the bond of peace, we look like the pagan world. We look like all the worshipers of Baal and Asherah and all the other pagan false gods who end up being so disunified and at odds with one another that they sacrifice their children to false deities. That's not unity. That's chaos. That's perversion. That's corruption. Brothers and sisters, a lot is at stake in our unity. Whether we reflect that we belong to the one Holy Spirit or whether we are reflecting that we are following the pattern of Satan. Second, Paul goes on. He tells us our unity is based on the reality that there is one Lord. There is only one Lord, he says in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And here Paul gives us another trilogy of terms. And the Lord is the foundation of the other two terms, just as the Spirit was the foundation of the first set of terms. 
The Lord here is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is clear as Paul makes a parallel statement in 1 Corinthians 8.6 where he says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. There is one Lord, Paul says. Who is He? He's Jesus Christ. He is Jesus the Messiah. And the fact that there is one Lord has the base, the same basic idea of there being one Spirit. Not a multitude of lords, not a multitude of kings and governors and princes that we are accountable to or that rule over us. Ultimately, there is only one who governs us, one to whom we are accountable, the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, there is but one Lord. There may be many so-called gods and so-called lords, and many governors and many kings and all the princes of the world, but for us believers, there is only one Lord, and we are accountable only to him. In Romans chapter 14, Paul makes this point. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 and verse 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die... We die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And then he adds this in verse 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We belong to the Lord. He is our one Lord. And if we live, we are to live for him. And when we die, we are going to die for him. And when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to give an account to him. And everything in our lives should be determined by the reality that there is one Lord and one only to whom we are accountable. That will eliminate a lot of problems trying to figure out the will of God. If we just block out everything else except what our one Lord has commanded us to do in his word, And we recognize that at the end of our lives, the only person that will be standing there taking an account from us is the Lord. Now, Paul goes further than this, just as he did with the Spirit. And the idea that there is one Lord also indicates the unified purpose the Lord is pursuing. The Lord is not confused. Our Lord doesn't have multiple standards. He doesn't have different systems of belief. He doesn't have multiple codes of law. We might think about our justice system, especially in this country, and say our justice system is corrupt, and it's like there is one standard for this group and one standard for that group. It doesn't work that way with the one true Lord. There is one Lord who has one standard. And if I have one Lord, then that means that you are accountable to that one standard, the Lord's standard. And that is what Paul is doing with the next two terms back in Ephesians 4. He says that there is one faith and one baptism. 
one faith and one baptism. Now, the idea of one faith is debated. Some say it is the subjective faith, that there is one belief that people have in Jesus Christ. And others say, no, this is an objective faith, speaking of one set of beliefs, one set of doctrines, one set of propositions we believe about the Lord. Now, if we think about these two options, the second one really makes the most sense because what it would mean to say is that there is one active belief by all of God's people. Even if you think about your own experience as a Christian, you recognize that your faith changes and grows over time. It moves. It's not static. You do not have one faith your whole life. Hopefully your faith is changing and growing and increasing as you walk with the Lord. Some people have great faith who are in Christ. Some people have little faith who are in Christ. And sometimes it is the same person who has great faith and little faith. It just depends on the circumstance. Think about Elijah. Martin has been taking us through 1 Kings the last few months, focusing on the story of Elijah the the Tishbite. Elijah one day is sarcastically mocking the prophets of Baal, and he is making fun of them, showing them how ridiculous their idolatry is. And then the next day he's running as far away as he can, all the way down to Mount Sinai, to get away from Queen Jezebel in fear of his life. How did he take on 400 men and run away from one woman? Our faith is just, it just fluctuates. And you may wake up today and say, I can take on the world for Christ. And you wake up tomorrow and think, if God doesn't hold on to me, I'm going to be lost. My faith is hanging on by a thread. This is how our faith operates in this fallen condition. And so what Paul is saying here is not that there is this one faith as in one type of belief. We understand from Scripture and experience that our faith moves and changes and hopefully grows over time. But what he is saying is there is one objective faith. There is one set of truth propositions that we all believe about the Lord. That means that there are not many roads that lead to Christ and to God. There is one set of truths. When someone, what someone believes is a matter of central and eternal significance. Truth matters. Doctrine is important because there is only one faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And if you have some other faith, you are not following the Lord. This means that there is only one gospel. There is only one path of salvation. There is not a gospel for Jews and a separate gospel for Gentiles. There is one gospel. It is good news for all sinners, no matter where they were born, what they look like, when they lived, what they've done wrong, or what wrongs have been done to them. The Lord Jesus came into the world and he died on a cross for sinners. And he was buried and rose again on the third day. Everyone who believes in him has eternal life, and he will come again to glorify them with himself at his appearing. 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel for everyone. This is the one faith that we have. If you look at the landscape of the church, not just today, but even in times past, you might be tempted to think there must be a different gospel for all of these different groups, for all these different kinds of people. Someone might say, especially in our own cultural and societal climate that is so hung up on identities, Someone might say, everyone needs their own gospel. No, they don't. Everyone needs one gospel, the true gospel, the one faith that has been delivered to us by which we know the Lord. The message of salvation is consistent and unchanging. Your Bible is not going to be updated in 10 years. The same gospel that saved the Jewish Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus saved all of us Gentile Americans in this room who know the Lord here in Broken Arrow. It's the exact same gospel, and we worship the same God, the same Lord. Paul then adds, there is one baptism in verse 5. Now again, there is endless discussion of, is this water baptism? Is this spirit baptism? Is it both? Is it something else? And we're not going to have time to solve that problem this afternoon. But here is how I understand what Paul is saying in inserting baptism here. And I was greatly helped in my understanding, by the way, by Martin Lloyd-Jones in his exposition of, of Ephesians 4. I highly recommend it. He is saying here that There is one Lord. He has given us one faith, one set of beliefs. And baptism is the outward sign that we belong to that Lord by putting our faith in him and his word. This goes back to the Great Commission when Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe things whatsoever I have commanded you. The idea of baptism is the idea of discipleship in the New Testament. Baptism is your entrance into following Christ. It is the very first thing that you do to indicate that you have now put your faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That faith results in obedience to all that Jesus commanded us. And that very first command is baptism. So what Paul is saying here is that there is one Lord. There is one set of doctrines that are true. And there is one path of discipleship. There is only one way to follow Christ. You can't follow Jesus your own way. You can't be Jesus' disciple on your own terms. Jesus isn't bargaining. He's not offering various packages of how to have eternal life. There is one package. There is one offer of salvation. There is one path of discipleship. And it leads through baptism because you are to make disciples and baptize them when they become disciples. We do not get to set the terms on how we follow Christ. To be a disciple means we have submitted to the one Lord. We have submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And this act of baptism demonstrates our faith in Christ. 
So then baptism is a source of unity, isn't it? Because we have all done the same thing, haven't we? If we're believers in Christ and been saved by Him, we've all put our faith in one Lord. And it's not just that we had some intellectual agreement with the gospel. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Like you would say, yes, George Washington was the first president of the United States. But there is such a faith in this truth that we have gone through baptism to submit our lives to the Lord. And so when we look around at the church and we see other believers who have submitted to the Lord in baptism, our baptism binds us together as followers of Christ. And it's an outward manifestation of what the Spirit has done within us to cause us to submit to Christ. And it forms unity among us. We can look at fellow believers who have been baptized and say, these are people who are following Christ, Christ's way. And that's our objective. That is what we are seeking to do. Unity, then, is a demonstration that there is only one Lord. There's only one gospel and there's only one way of salvation. And our unity is built on these truths and flows out of them. And the reason that our unity is so vital is because what it says about Christ. There is one Lord. It serves to glorify Christ as the true Lord of all. Now third, our unity is based on the reality that there is one God and Father. In verse 6, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And This is the climax of the exhortation in verses 1 through 6. As Paul now gives glory to the Father. But there is an immediate problem we come to as we read verse 6. And it's this little word, all. And the problem is that the word all in the original language is not clear on whether it is a personal meaning, all people, or whether it is an objective meaning, all things. In the Greek language, it could be rendered either way based on the form that's used. And so, is he talking about God being the God of all things or the God of all people? Now, obviously, God is the creator of everything. If you look through Ephesians, you will see that God being described as Father is always a personal concept. It's the idea that he is the Father of people. And that begins all the way back in the first chapter when Paul talks about his electing love and the fact that he has chosen us and adopted us and all of the wonderful graces laid out in Ephesians chapter 1. God is our personal father. So here in Ephesians 4, after all of this talk of God as personal father, for Paul to start speaking of God as the God of all things in this more impersonal way seems out of place. So I think it's better to understand this as the God of all people. But then that raises the question, in what sense is he the God of all people? It could be said in some generic way that God is the father of all people because he is the creator of all people. It says at the end of verse 6 that he is in all. I suppose you could say that in some generic way, 
that he is in all because we are all made in his image and some way reflect God as, be, as being people made in the image of God. But the problem with taking it that way is that we don't find God in the Bible being described as the father of unbelievers. In fact, Jesus says in John 8:44 that unbelievers are not children of God, but children of the devil. Telling the Jews who were seeking to discredit and stone him, ye are of your father the devil. And just a few verses earlier in John 8:42, Jesus said that God is only the father of those who love the son. He says, if God were your father, ye would love me. Furthermore, language of God being in people is very strange when speaking of unbelievers. We do not ever find any meaningful sense in Scripture that God is an, that God is in an unbeliever. In fact, if we look back at Ephesians chapter two, again we see in the opening verses that it is the spirit of the prince of the power of the air that is now in the children of disobedience. How could God the Father be in them and the spirit of the prince of the power of the air be working in them at the same time? Those things are contradictory. We might think about Ephesians 2, verse 12, where we read that they were without God in the world. How could God be in them and they be without God? That doesn't make any sense. So as we look at this, we have to conclude that this is not the general fatherhood of God over all people, but this is God being the father of all believers. And the only people in view in the all here are all those who are in Christ. In other words, this is not an exhaustive all. This also makes sense when you think about the context. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the unity of the people of God. He's talking about the unity of the church. So here, if he is saying God is over all people, believer and unbeliever, and through all people, believer and unbeliever, and in all people, believer and unbeliever, and he's the father of all people, believer and unbeliever, what does that say about the unity that Paul is talking about here? Wouldn't that mean that we would be united with unbelievers? After all, if we all have the same father and God is over us and he is working in us and through us, believer and unbeliever, no distinction, then the whole argument for the unity of the church in this passage falls apart. And so here we have to say that this is speaking of all believers, everyone who is in Christ. God is the father of all Christians. Now, what are the implications for this? Verse 6. We see that in the three phrases that end the verse, over all, through all, and in you all. First, we have one God and Father of all believers who is above all, over all of us. Now, that speaks of God's sovereignty over his church. God is sovereign over all of his people. Now, we know that theologically from other passage that, passages that God is sovereign over everything, believers, unbelievers, God is sovereign over animals, events, stars. 
God is sovereign over everything that exists. But the point here is not primarily that, but that God is sovereign over us. God is ruling our lives as his people. God has ordained our lives for his glory. And he is working out everything in our lives for our good. And what an amazing reality it is to think that God is doing this not only for you and me, but he is doing this all for his people both now and throughout all of eternity, working out everything for the good. And everything that happens in history, God is coordinating for the good of his church, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so as believers, we can rest in that. We can rest in the fact that God is sovereign over our lives because he is our father and he reigns over us in love. And everything that comes into our lives has been ordained by God's hand and nothing comes into our lives except what God ordains to come into our lives. That means that even those people in the church who are difficult for you are put in the same assembly as you by God. God ordained that to happen. God is sovereign over all of that. The members of this church, God has sovereignly brought them here. And they are members of this church because because God has a purpose that he is doing in the world and in the church. And he is ruling over us in love. In fact, it may just be the person in the church that is most difficult that God brought here to test you or me to refine you, to teach you how to love like he loves. Nothing happens by chance. There's no accidents for the believer. We understand that God is sovereign over our lives, and we can rest in that sovereignty. When things in the church seem difficult, we need to preserve unity. We need to keep that unity, knowing that God has brought all of these people at this time for this purpose And our job is to keep that unity God has brought. Second, he says, God the Father is through all. Now that has the idea of God's power. The first one is God's sovereignty. This one is God's power. God is at work through all of his people. The same God that empowers me to proclaim his gospel is the same God that is empowering you to love your neighbor and to raise your children to teach a Bible study, to obey your parents, and all the other things God has called you to do. It's the same God that is work in me and at work in you and all believers throughout history. And what are the implications for our unity in this? If God is at work in all of us, then we need to glorify him by being unified, knowing that he is working in all of our lives. We can't let petty disagreements and hurt feelings or personal insults or a lack of forgiveness or selfishness or self-centered attitude contradict the work that God is doing through all of us. One of the most important things that we can recognize as we look at one another in the church is that God is working through you and through me. I may not understand what he is doing, and it may be frustrating for me, the way he is working through you at a particular moment, and it may be frustrating for you the way he is working through me at a particular moment. 
But we must recognize that if someone is in Christ, that God is at work in their life. And that means that we need to do what we can to preserve unity because God is working in that brother or sister. And we need to be encouraging what God is doing in their lives. And we need others to encourage us in what God is doing in our lives. Paul says, finally, that God is in all of his people in verse 6. This is God's presence in his church. The marvelous truth that the omnipotent God, who is sovereign over everything, who spoke the worlds into existence, who is transcendent over the universe, he's in us. He's present. He's not far away. He's not watching from a distance. He's here. He's in all of Christ's people. And so there is a sense then that if we let things divide us that shouldn't divide us, that we are what we are actually doing is seeking to divide God because we are all here with God in all of us. And that is really the high point of Paul's argument here. The same God that is in you is in me. And so... We can't find some way to reconcile, some way to have unity, to have forgiveness, to overlook offenses if the same God is in both of us. In fact, we don't have, don't we have a duty to forgive when people sin against us, if God is in them? Don't we have a duty if we sin against a brother or sister in Christ to go to that person and seek their forgiveness knowing that God is in them? Don't we have a duty to overlook unintentional offenses, knowing that the glory of God is more important than our personal feelings? I'm sure we've all experienced that moment when someone comes to us and tells us that horribly offensive thing we did to them, and we had no idea that they were even present when it happened. It is an unintentional offense. If God is in all his people, then we need to be able to overlook these things. We all have personal feelings, but those personal feelings don't take precedence over the glory of God in his church that is expressed by that unity that is kept in the church. I'm not saying that we should never address someone who has hurt us or we shouldn't sweep sin under the rug and treat it as a trivial thing, but we should at least seek to address it, seek to bring unity because God is in all of us. In fact, that should give us some urgency to preserve this unity against any and all efforts of the evil one. Not only to destroy our unity, but to destroy the glory of God. You see, the issue, what makes disunity in the church so evil and what makes Satan's attempts to divide the church so wicked is not the ramifications it has on us. It is what it does to the glory of God. Satan's assault on our unity really has nothing to do with us. He couldn't care less about us. He is setting out to attack the glory of God. And when we begin to wrap our minds around that, it helps us to understand that we need to stay united because this isn't about us. This is about God, and this is about his glory. And our unity is based on it and rooted in the one true and living God. The most important thing we are doing 
as we seek to diligently keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is not to make sure our human relationships are pleasant. It is to make sure that we are giving glory to our great and holy God who is one Spirit, one Lord, and one Father above us, above all of us. Three glorious, magnificent persons in one holy God. And it is this character of God that forms the basis of our unity. It is this character of God that gives us a reason to fight, to keep it, when it seems like it isn't worth fighting for. Jesus said something extraordinary in the high priestly prayer in John 17. In John 17, 21, Jesus is praying, and he says, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, as Jesus is praying for our unity, he is grounding it in the person of the Father and the person of the Son being joined together in the unity as one God. And he makes this incredible statement that in this unifying of his people, he has given us glory. Why is that so remarkable? Because in the book of Isaiah, the Lord says this, my glory I will not give another. And Jesus says, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them so that we might be united. We have been brought right into the union of God. The only way God can give his glory to us is if he is in us and we are in him. And when that happens, that means that we are also one with each other. Our unity displays the glory of God, a glory that he refuses to give to another but gives to us because we are in Christ together as the body of Christ. And when we display this glory that God keeps only for himself, the world will have no choice but to recognize, not that we are anything significant, but that Jesus came from God. That is the point, to glorify the Son. And when we are unified and we display this glory of God that is not shared but is marvelously and miraculously shared with us, the world sees that. And Christ is glorified. And that's what our goal is, right? To glorify God. To glorify Jesus Christ and to make his glory known throughout the whole world. That is why we work hard to do something that is hard and difficult, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are always in awe of what you say. Lord, we have again beheld marvelous things in your word. And we're amazed that you have given glory to us in Christ. 
that we may be unified and the world may know that you sent your only Son. Father, we, we wonder with Paul who is sufficient for these things. Our sufficiency is from, from your Son. And Lord, we pray that through his strength we would be able to glorify you and the Son and the Holy Spirit and that you would receive that glory and the world would know that you sent Jesus into the world. Thank you, Lord, for sending him to be our Lord and our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from death. And Lord, thank you that you have exalted him to your right hand. Lord, we pray that as long as we are in this world, that you will strengthen us. Lord, that you will cause us to maintain and keep this unity of your spirit in the bond of peace. And that by that, Lord, we would continue to bring glory and honor to you and to Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his holy name. Amen.